0: Yeah, so I'm Tim. Uh, Good morning from me, Uh, and I am one of the students here. I also lead a home group, and it's my pleasure to be sharing a few thoughts with you this morning. Uh, First thing, I just want to get out of the way. Snow. Not going to mention it again. (laughs) Yeah, it's straight back into our uh, series in John, and I want to dive right in. Uh, So a quick recap first on where we're up to, as we've had a few weeks off. Uh, Lazarus, Jesus' friend, has died and has been buried. Uh, Jesus waited a few days after hearing this, uh, of his illness, and then makes a late arrival onto the scene. The family and friends of Lazarus are distraught, and understandably so. They also question Jesus. If he'd come sooner, maybe, maybe he'd been able to heal Lazarus. Jesus is cryptic in his response, and he's also struck with emotion at the situation. He weeps with the mourners, and that is where we got to. So without further ado, let's uh, read the passage. So then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. I should tell you where the passage is. It's is John 11, <laughs> verses 38 to 57. I'm also going to move this up a little bit. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. <laughs> Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, "You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish." He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, And many of them went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Wow, so Lazarus is raised from the dead. Who saw that coming? (laughs) Unless, of course, you've heard the story before, or you were here for Jesse's spoiler a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, but really, it is—it is quite remarkable. Lazarus is raised from the dead. People don't come back from the dead every day. Let's not let familiarity get in the way of wonder. This famous miracle is the last miracle recorded by John and his gospel. And this passage, in many ways, is a turning point in the gospel. Um, up to this point, Jesus, uh, John has been focused on Jesus' miracles and his claims about who he is. But from here on in, uh, the, the tack changes and we move quickly towards Jesus' death on the cross. So in many ways, this is a focal point, a culmination of where we've been going thus far in the book. You may remember a few, a few weeks back, maybe a month or two now, Jim speaking about Jesus healing a blind man and the resulting inquiry in which um, they had to decide whether or not Jesus was the Messiah or someone, something very different. You remember Jeremy speaking about Jesus' claim to be a good shepherd and what that means for us. Again, we see today that Jesus' action, what he does, the miracle of Lazarus, uh, causes people to respond in different ways to how he is. Some question, what good is it going to do for us and for the people? And some accept him and believe for themselves. So at this final time, final miracle in John... John asks us, how are we going to respond to who Jesus is? For John, this is it. If people can't see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead uh, and accept him, then they won't for anything else. Enough evidence for who Jesus is has been presented, and the people who will recognise him have done so. So as we look at the passage today, John invites us to see who Jesus is and to consider our response to him. So who is he? What does he do and how should we respond? As I was preparing for today and looking at the passage, I was struck by three things. Firstly, his deep emotion. Secondly, his intimate relationship with the Father. And thirdly, the way in which he does all things for the glory of God. That's three points this morning. Off we go. The first thing we see, and I want to bring out, is Jesus' deep-seated emotion. Verse 38, the very start of our passage reads, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. He was deeply moved again. We've been told just before the passage about Jesus' emotional response to what is going on. Verse 33 says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We're then told in verse 35, famously the shortest verse in the Bible, that Jesus wept. Jesus was moved by the point of weeping to what was going on. But in case the level of Jesus' emotion in this passage isn't clear enough, the Greek word, which we translate as deeply moved, is much richer than our translation lets on. The verb is embrymatami. Pretty good mouthful. I'm going to get you to say it, because that's fun. Em- I'm going to say it, embrymatami. yeah. It's not a particularly key word, but it's fun to make people say words. Um, in the bible the word carries a sense of indignation and of anger but outside the bible the word actually means to snort as a horse would snort so the sense is actually in this passage that Jesus snorts like internally he goes oh. he sees it and he goes oh. something about what's going on here makes Jesus physically angry and what makes it all the more remarkable is the fact that Jesus knows what's going to happen he knows he can raise letters back to life and yet he's still angry He's still upset with what's going on. He still weeps. Jesus, the the son of God, sees the mess of the situation before him. The pain caused by death. And he goes, oh. And you know how sometimes when you see something and it makes you angry. And then a few minutes later, you're hit by that same thing again. And you go, oh, all over again. And the new depth of the pain and the upset hits you. I think that's what's happening here. Jesus is just being hit again and again by the emotion of the situation and how it's not quite right. I don't know about you, but I often find myself thinking about Jesus as a bit of a robot, a super amazing healing kind of robot, but not someone capable of feeling like me. The way he seems to talk, too, can really feel dense, particularly in John's Gospel. He's a bit more like Yoda than a real human. But in this passage, as we see him speaking... We're reminded that Jesus is a living, breathing human being. He feels. And even now, Jesus is alive and he feels. He sees the pain and the mess and the sin. And he goes, oh. Do you see him like this? I know that I do. I don't often see him as someone goes, oh, at the pain around me. I more often see him as a robot. Let's allow our eyes to be transformed so that we see Jesus as he is. Jesus goes oh at the mess around us and the brokenness. Before I move on, I also want to reflect on our own emotion, specifically our compassion. Jesus feeling anger in this passage, the sort of feeling he has, has something to do with compassion. As I read before in verse thirty-three, Jesus uh, John tells us that Jesus, when he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He sees everyone else weeping, and then this moves him. He feels, he suffers with them. Compassion means to enter into another's pain and suffering, to feel it with them. Jesus is compassionate. He sees the pain, and he, he groans with it. So I want to ask you, what makes you groan? What makes you go, oh? Jesus models what our response should be to the pain of others, the pain of the world around us. We too should go, ugh. Oh. We should weep with those who weep. We should mourn with those who mourn. But I don't find myself feeling like this very often. Although I know there is a myriad of things every day which should make me. The sight of a homeless man sitting alone in the cold outside Tesco's. The lady 10 metres away earning almost nothing to sell the big issue. The fact that in Fife, 25% of families are under the relative poverty line. And further afield, the fact that more than 20 million people are held in modern-day slavery. And the list could easily go on. All of these things should make me go, ah, oh. and yet, to be honest, most of the time, they don't. Maybe for some of us, I know this is true for me, there are things that in the past have made me, made me angry like that, but actually, I've swept them under the rug. I've forgotten about them. I've become dulled to them. If Jesus feels compassion in such a way that makes him move inside, makes him physically angry we need to be cultivating compassion in our lives too. I want to offer just one practical thought about how we do this, and that's that we need to open ourselves to see and feel the pain and brokenness of others. I live a largely insular life. Most of my concerns are centered on myself, my family, and then a close set of friends. I don't allow myself to enter into things further afield than that. It costs emotional energy. It hurts. And if I care enough, It'll interrupt my time as I engage in the problems of others. But I think Jesus models a different way. He knows and he sees all of the problems. And yet he chooses to engage. He chooses to feel the pain, no matter what the cost. So we need to begin to come and try and see and feel the brokenness of others and the pain in the world around us. We can do this simply by getting involved. It starts with a choice, but compassion will grow. There's volunteering with Storehouse, our, our own compassion ministry, that's what we call it. Students Just Love is a great resource um, for exploring sort of ways you can get involved. We can research, just reading about things, opening our eyes to what people are going through will make a difference. And we can pray. Prayer changes us too. It doesn't really matter how we do it, but we need to be cultivating compassion. We need to put ourselves in situations where we can engage in the situations of others. We're God's hands and feet. He chooses to work through us, so let's take on the challenge of compassion. Not with guilt, because we aren't doing enough. There's a real risk of that in this sort of thing, but this isn't to make us feel guilty, but it is meant to challenge. Loving because we should will take us some way, but uh, I'm pretty convinced that until we start cultivating compassion for the broken, for those who don't know the Father, I think we're only going to be half as effective as we could be as we were created to be in our mission as kingdom bringers and gospel sharers. So Jesus goes, "Uh, let's choose to grow compassion in ourselves too. So secondly this morning, I want to reflect on intimacy. Jesus' intimacy with the Father and our intimacy with God. Did you notice that the words of Jesus' prayer are a little bit odd? Um, This is kind of a Yoda-ish bit for me. So he goes, uh, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, if I was standing in front of a tomb with a dead man in it, my prayer would be something like, God, how about you raise him? That would be really great. Or, you know, just some sort of prayer asking for Lazarus to be raised. But but that's not what we hear Jesus saying. It's all in weird tenses as well. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But for the benefit of the people, I said this for the benefit of the people here, that they may believe. It's all a little bit weird. It's also odd that that John presents this prayer as one that Jesus is praying publicly, that everyone can hear. That's not something that happens very often, particularly because it's sort of a one-on-one prayer, Jesus to the Father. But I think that Jesus wants to teach us something through the words of this prayer. Firstly, as he says himself, he wants the people standing there to know that God sent him. He's not acting on his own mandate He is acting on the Father's authority. Through this prayer, Jesus is making a statement about who he is. I am the one from God. As I mentioned at the start, this is a turning point in the the gospel. And this is, for John, the last time when people get to really make a decision about who Jesus is. So who do we say he is? Do we say he's from God? Do we not? But I think this prayer reveals something else, something further I think it also shows Jesus' intimacy with the Father. He prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. When Jesus prays, he is not praying for Lazarus to be raised. He already knew that Lazarus would be raised. It seems that Jesus has prayed for Lazarus to be raised previously, and so all he does here is thank God. And loudly, so that all knew that the Father had ordained what would happen. In fact, if we go back to the start of the chapter, It seems that Jesus was confident that Lazarus would be raised right from the start. In verse 4, he says um, that the illness of Lazarus won't end in death, but God will be glorified through it. The picture of intimacy we see in this chapter is quite remarkable. Jesus knows God's plans. He knows what is going on and what is his part. Earlier in the book, in chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says that he can do nothing apart from the Father. He only does what he sees the Father doing. And here we see that in action. Whatever God does, Jesus does also. He lives by this. He knows that God will raise Lazarus from the dead and lives in obedience to this. Jesus lives in an intimate obedience with God. So there are two observations about intimacy that I want to make. I know that I crave intimacy with God and I long every day to live in his presence, to know him more and to love him more, to go closer to him. But I think Jesus is pretty clearly the perfect model. My first observation uh, is his obedience. I said before that he is in intimate obedience with the Father. But obedience fosters intimacy. My late grandfather was a market gardener. He grew fruit, vegetables, and flowers for a living. And when I was young, I used to go and stay with him and my gran during the holidays, I guess, free childcare for my parents. When I was there, I would spend time in the field helping him out. I particularly remember helping to dig potatoes. I want you to picture the image. At the age of five or six, the pitchfork was probably about as big as I was. I was no use at digging up potatoes. But Grandad would invite me anyway. He'd put the pitchfork in my hands, and then, stooping over from behind, he would hold the pitchfork with me, and together we would dig the potatoes. He never said a lot. He was a very quiet man. But I knew he loved me. And that intimacy was at least in part fostered by my choice to be obedient, to go where he was and to do what he was doing when he invited me. If I hadn't gone and dug up potatoes, I wouldn't have been close to him. Jesus is intimate with the Father through obedience. He knows that God will raise ladders from the dead and he chooses to go and do what God says. He doesn't rush and take matters into his own hands. He doesn't go quickly to go and heal Lazarus before he dies. He waits. He chooses to go and do what God says. Obedience fosters intimacy, and we need to be obedient to God. By choosing to do what he says, we will be where he is. If we want to be intimate with God, we need to be obedient. Secondly, we need to act for God's glory. This idea is linked with the first Uh, If we do what God says, then we'll be acting for his glory. Doing things God's way reveals who he is and reveals how glorious he is. So in many ways, acting in obedience means acting for God's glory. However, I think that making an active choice to pursue God's glory fosters intimacy in its own right too. It's clear that Jesus is acting for God's glory in this passage. He says it as much himself. Uh, When Martha questions whether Mary really wants to roll the stone away because it's smelly, Jesus says, if she believes, uh, then she will see the glory of God. So he's acting as he's acting to reveal the glory of God. But how does this foster intimacy? I want to bring up the example of Brother Lawrence. Uh, he was a French monk in the 1600s who is often held up as an example of how we might live in an intimate relationship with God. He wrote a small, uh, small collection of writings, which after his death were confiled into the practice of the presence of God. It's a really good read. I thoroughly recommend it. And I've recently been slowly working my way through. What I've been really struck by, though, is his emphasis on doing every action for the love of God. So often, I find, when I want to foster more intimacy, I think, right, more quiet time. I'm going to sit and I'm going to just read more of the Bible, or I'm going to sit in silence more often. But Brother Lawrence, though, uh, he doesn't suggest these grand actions and gestures. He doesn't suggest committing more time in prayer to gain a knowledge of his presence. He just suggests that we do every little thing for the love of God. He worked in the kitchen for many years and there he learned to practice God's presence, as he calls it, amongst the pots and pans. He did his menial work for the love of God. He was a monk, so prayer, worship and reflection were part of his everyday. They were key ingredients for his intimacy with God. And so they should be for us too. Jesus models this as well. He regularly goes off to take time to pray. But there is more to intimacy than that, and Brother Lawrence models it. If we are intent in every situation to bring glory to God, to act out of love for him, to treat every detail as a chance to glorify him, to love him, we will find that our days become saturated with him. As we focus our activities on him, we will consider how we might please him, how we might glorify him, becoming more attentive to who he is, Even washing the dishes can be a chance to grow our intimacy with God. So Jesus models intimacy in this passage. He chooses to be obedient to God, to go where he is and join in with what he does. And he chooses to spend his life glorifying God. We too can foster intimacy in our lives through obedience and pursuing God's glory in every situation. So thirdly and finally, I want to quickly reflect on what living for God's glory might look like. Um, this is just one small reflection, there's so much more to say on this, um, but I was particularly struck by a contrast in this passage, a contrast between living for our own expediency and the challenge of living for God's glory. The Pharisees, in the second half of the passage, choose political expediency over what is right. They see Jesus' signs, they see what he does, but instead their, their response is to think, oh, What does this mean for us? How is this going to get in the way of our plans? What they say is that they're afraid that if he keeps going, the Romans will come in and take away their place and their nation. They choose to kill Jesus for the sake of political expediency, in order to keep the Romans happy. Maybe they choose to kill Jesus because they feel threatened by his authority. But they do choose to kill him, essentially murder For the sake of political ease, out of fear. Jesus, on the other hand, chooses God's glory, even though this means a difficult path. God's glory means waiting for a friend to die and then raising him back to life. It means waiting while friends keep questioning why he's acting as he is. It means putting himself in a place which, as Mary points out, is going to smell really bad. But he chooses to do it nonetheless. Living a life pursuing God's glory is not the easy route for us. It means setting aside what seems the easiest and most profitable in many situations. It means trusting in his higher ways, even when this might be smelly. And specifically from this passage, I wonder this morning if God is calling any of us to allow him to roll away the stone on certain things in our lives. In this passage, the glory comes when Jesus rolls away the swell when someone rolls away the stone and Jesus says, Come out, come back to life. I think there are things that some of us have put to death and Jesus wants to breathe new life into them. He wants to take the dust and the ashes and breathe life so that he might be glorified. Many of these places will be places of our own brokenness where we aren't good enough, where we've failed. But he's not going to let the pieces fall. He will use them for his glory. And some of the places are things that we've just chosen to put to death. We think that's not for me, that's not for now. And he wants to say, no, that's part of who I made you to be. Just let it be so. In both of these cases, rolling away the stone will probably be painful. It's probably a bit of a mess there. It's going to come with a smell. But beyond the smell, rolling away the stone will bring healing, new life, and ultimately God's glory. So that's everything I have to bring this morning. Uh, so, there are three points that I had to say. The first was about um, the first one was about compassion that Jesus goes, oh, he groans. What are the things that make us groan? Where are we trying to grow compassion in our lives? And secondly, I, I brought a little bit of reflection on um, what it means to be intimate with God, how Jesus fosters intimacy through pursuing god 's glory in every situation, and through um, next page that's why I can't see it Um, through intimacy uh, through um, obedience and through glory and thirdly I talked a little bit about rolling away the stone what it means to live a life committed to God's glory in a minute we're going to do some ministry and I probably should have asked how that was going to work because I imagine we're going to do it at the front we're going to do it at the front there's not a lot of space but we're going to do some ministry time we're going to do it at the front I imagine as well if you turn to the person next to you and say hey can I have some prayer if you feel like There's no space here or you just can't get there if you're at the back sitting on a table. Hi. Um, But yeah, we're going to have to spend some time in ministry. So all that means is we're going to allow for God to come and move among us, for the spirit to move. And Lizzie's going to lead us in some worship as we do that. If you need anything from God, if God is doing anything in you, if you sense a stirring towards compassion, if you feel a deepened desire for intimacy, if God is nudging you that now is the time to roll away the stone. That he might be glorified through you. I invite you to come. Whatever it is you need, just come. Shall we stand and then I'll pray? Father God, I thank you that you uh, work in brokenness, that even in places where there's death and there's darkness, you come and you breathe life. And we ask that that life would come and move here among us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you be breathing new things to life? And would you be growing in us a greater awareness of who you are and who we are in you?